the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my guest co-host, Catherine McNeil, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Catherine, we've been hearing so much in the news lately about Afghan refugees, and, you know, the stories are just absolutely overwhelming at times. And I think it's so important for us sometimes to step back from the numbers, the statistics, and um, remember that these are real people going through something really hard and just um, get personal with some of these stories. Oh yeah, it is. It's so big. It's so far away. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a, it's not a problem. Any one person can solve from this side of the world. But you know, interestingly last week, you know, I'm a writer. Um, this pastor is trying to lead her congregation in raising money to bring over a particular Afghan family wow. that is suffering because of the way they've served the United States Army and the United States government. Mm. Um, they have very specific information about this family and why they're in danger and why they're in crisis right now. And mm. so this local church, normal-sized church, is trying to raise the funds to support this one family. Wow. Um, and it becomes personal Beautiful. to them. Yeah. They can't, they can't fix the whole problem. Right. But they can impact this one family. Mm, I love that. That's such a good call, I think, for all churches to maybe consider. Is there one Afghan refugee family that we could support, whether it's through World Relief or through other personal mm-hmm. connections, other mm-hmm. organizations? You know, Kent Annan, he's been on the show before. And he is from Wheaton College Humanitarian Disaster Institute. Um, And, you know, he was recently working with some of the Afghan refugees who have just landed. And at the Dallas Morning News, I wanted to share some of his personal stories because I think just like your pastor friend, Catherine, these stories help us remember and I think have some compassion and some empathy Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. what's happening with the Afghan refugees. Um, What he talks about is that um, 16 days He was on a U.S. military base in Virginia helping Afghan guests through the initial stages of resettlement. And like you said, Catherine, there are many Afghan families who are in danger, who didn't make it out of the country, but are in danger because they partnered and allied with America. Exactly. They burned their local bridges in order to serve the United States government, the United States military. And it's incumbent on us now to... Provide a path to safety. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So what Kent Annan says is that um, he interviewed large families in which only the father was literate. He had conversations in perfect English with Afghans who had, listen to this, saved U.S. soldiers from deadly IED attacks Mm. and then barely made it to the airport to leave the country. Unbelievable. He also says this one is this this story he shared is really powerful for me. He watched girls draw with crayons to occupy themselves during long, long interviews with their families. If these girls had not gotten out, they may have never learned to read or write. Now, it won't be surprising if in 20 years, one of these girls grows up to found a tech startup that helps to transform our lives and employ many fellow Americans. Nearly, here's what Kent says, nearly half a fortune, 500 companies, after all, were founded by immigrants or their children. Wow. Oh, like, nearly half of yeah. Fortune 500 companies founded by immigrants or their children. That in and of itself, I think, is a powerful statement, especially for people who feel um, maybe weary or even anti-immigration. Mm, okay. Because I think a lot of the a lot of the criticism about immigration is they just come and they take from our country and they don't give. But I mean, we just read nearly right. half a fortune, 500 companies. So that's employing people. Yes. That's helping oh, the economy. Yes. That's adding, creating, to, inventing, yes. innovating. Yes. We're founded by immigrants or, or their, their children. children. Half. 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 I mean, let's, let's be mindful of that. Well, and that's not even including again, the unsung hard workers mm. day in and day yeah. out who are, 
working uh, to keep our supply chain running, um, doing so much work behind the scenes that we can't even see. You know, I, I'm looking at this article mm-hmm. as well, Aubrey, and I scroll down to the end and I just can't even, I can't move my page because he ends with this. Welcome. We can't imagine how hard this has been, but we're very glad you're safe. We're very glad you're here. Oh, makes me want to cry. I know. And, you know, my prayer is that Americans in general, but the American church specifically, um, will take on this posture. Yes. Um, We can't imagine how hard this has been, but we're glad that you're safe. And we're very glad that you're here. Mm. Um, Because even if these people hadn't risked their lives, their families, their uh, futures to help us, uh, they are still our brothers and sisters. Yeah. In humanity, yeah. uh, they are men and women and boys and girls. And mm. the Bible just, if it says anything over and over again, it's take care of the stranger, take care of the vulnerable. Take care of the stranger, take care of the vulnerable, the stranger, the vulnerable. Um, yes. As Christians, we are so powerfully called to have a posture of compassion. That's right. And so, yeah. Yeah. This I'm so is grateful so for his beautiful. work. You can go to Dallas Morning News and read Kent's article there. The other thing that he says is, is this story. He said, one volunteer I worked alongside is an Afghan American on the Afghan national track team. His specialty is the 800 meters, a race in between sprint and long distance. The Afghans arriving have finished their first sprint. Now begins their long distance work of resettlement. And so does ours. If we follow through, then as a country, we can continue to say, this is what Catherine was talking about. We can continue to say with our deepest sincerity and our actions, mm-hmm. welcome. Uh, it's so powerful. You can find more about the work that Kent is doing at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. You can also um, look at organizations like International Rescue Committee, World Relief, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and others like them. They need volunteers. They need prayer partners. They need financial resources. They need more churches like Catherine's friend, who's the pastor, who's trying to partner with a family. And I think it's important for us to remember that there are 250,000 Afghans who have worked for U.S. mission in the past 20 years, but are still in Afghanistan. They're an estimated 18 million more. Oh, my under humanitarian risk right now. And the the U.S. cannot walk away from this. And the Church of Jesus Christ cannot walk away from this. And Aubrey, it's not that just you and I, average people, need to come up with a way to solve the whole problem. Um, You know what? We don't even need to have any ideas at all. We just need to make a phone call Mm. to the experts who already know what to do. That's so good. Look up World Relief. Yes. Um, Look up the International Rescue Committee. Um, talk to the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College in Illinois yep. and say, I have a little bit of time. I have a little bit of money. I have some coats. I, I know some people in my neighborhood got together and did a coat drive because that. winter's coming. Oh, and yes. it does, it's not like this in Afghanistan, yes. you know. So uh, you don't even need to know what to do. You can just make a phone call and say, I care. Mm. You're the expert. What do you need? Um, we we had someone from World Relief on the show last week, and I'll just say this briefly, and then we can begin to close. But um, at World Relief, you can actually go to their website, and you can search who your uh, government leaders are. Okay. And so they will actually craft a letter for you if you want to see some policy change, if you want to see your representatives take the um, Afghan uh, refugees more seriously than you feel like there are. World Relief will do all of that work for you. You just look up where you live. I think you type in your zip code. They'll craft a letter. They will send it. And that's another way that you can be really active around this issue. Again, that's worldrelief.org. You'll find everything you need to there. Like Catherine was saying, to partner with an organization that's already doing this work to support Afghan refugees. I love knowing that because I often find myself wanting to advocate with my elected officials, but I don't know how to get in touch with them. I don't really know what to say. I don't know if it's just going to go in the garbage anyway. So. Again, I love that they they know what to do. I just need to say, I want my voice to be added to this. Yeah, that's exactly right. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just join what experts are doing. Well, coming up next, we're joined by Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. He's a friend of the show. He's coming on to discuss abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. So stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. (laughs) 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. And we are thrilled to be joined by friend of the show, almost the best friend of the show at this point because he's been on so much, Bob Smetana. He's a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. Bob, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, glad to be here. Bob, I appreciate your work and just the integrity that you bring to your reporting. Um, I am not Southern Baptist or even Southern Baptist adjacent. I grew up in Minnesota. I'm not Southern anything. But ever since getting on Twitter a few years ago, I hear the Southern Baptist coming up again and again. What would you say to someone like me who's just trying to figure out what is going on here? Well, there's a lot going on. You know, so one, it's the big, this is the biggest Protestant denomination in the country. So there are about 15 million people, so they are, and they're everywhere. So they are really important. And they're having the same problems. I think what's playing out there is the same problems that everywhere else. They're trying to understand that, you know, how to deal with race and how to deal with the decline of church membership and how to deal with sexual abuse. Mm. And, you know, like all kinds of religious institutions and secular institutions, they're not, they're, they're kind of muddling through right now. You recently wrote an article over at Religion News Service called A Brief Guide to the Southern Baptist Meltdown Over Sexual Abuse, one of the things you just mentioned. Can you talk to us about what's happening? Sure. So there's, there's a couple things. So the Southern Baptists have um, a very top-down governance model so that every church local, church, local church is autonomous. They have a national office, an executive committee office in Nashville, but it's very small. You know, it's, okay. they just basically handle the money and, and send it out to the other entity. And so the, the leader, and they, and they conduct the business of the conventions uh, during, between their annual meetings. So that's a little bit of background. Okay. So for a long time, the leaders there have said when sexual abuse has come up, especially kind of post-2000 when, when everything broke in the Catholic Church, they've long said, this is not a problem for us, and we can't do anything at a national level because we can't control churches. And that's long mm. been the case. And there have been long, long been concerns that that kind of uh, policy has led kind of to um, disregard of abuse victims mm. uh, and in some ways bullying of them. And it got uh, in a sense that uh, because of our policy, we can't do anything at all. Mm. Yeah. And besides condemn it and say you should report to the police, there hasn't uh, there. There's been no kind of. So, for example, if there were. You know, they wouldn't, they've been asked repeatedly to put together a database of abusive pastors. Wow. Someone gets arrested and convicted, they've been asked to keep track of them. So that way, if the church, you know, were to uh, look for a pastor, they would, they can go and look. Right. And they have, they have said, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. So this, this all came to head really started in 2018 when one of their uh, kind of core leaders, a guy named Paige Patterson, mm-hmm. uh, was, was fired. Uh, for essentially covering up a rape on the, the uh, um, at the seminary where he'd been president, mm. um, and he also made a number of very kind of uh, rude comments about uh, young women and kind of blaming women if they get abused. Um, so, so but in 2019, Houston Chronicle did a huge abuse report finding hundreds of cases in some in Southern Baptist churches, mm, uh, in, wow. in some cases where churches were hiring and still have convicted sex offenders on staff. And that sort yeah. of broke it for folks. Okay. And what they wanted was, you know, so they, they changed their bylaws so that if you throw out a church that is abusive, um, they have, you know, held a whole public lament on this. They really tried to get their act together on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's at stake now is, um, is that pastors and churches have turned their eyes to the executive committee and said, how did you treat abuse survivors Yeah, mm-hmm. when they came to you? And there's one case in particular where a woman who'd been abused, and who was an adult, abused by a seminary professor, uh, and that seminary professor was fired, but when she told the story to the Baptist press, it was described instead of being abusive as a kind of inappropriate relationship. Mm. Um, she ended up being fired from her job and it was, a, 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 and there was a real resistance to changing that. So, mm. so anyway, the, the, the Southern Baptist this summer, uh, at their annual meeting, there's about 18,000 people there. Uh, the executive committee itself said, well, we'll do an investigation to check into our own behavior to see how we did. 
Okay. And there were messages to local churches said, no, you can't investigate yourself. We're going to hire an outside yeah, party yeah. Right. to investigate you. And that's where we are now. There's a fight over who gets to control the investigation. Uh, so I know it's a long, uh, but it's, it's, that's what's going on now. Okay. The, the messengers are, you know, the, they set up a task force, hire an investigator. They have set that up, and the, the executive committee is balking at waiving attorney-client privilege and wants to control how much information is published about their behavior. Okay. That's a really clarifying uh, summary I was really intrigued by the article that you wrote that is saying that the Southern Baptist Seminary presidents um, are also coming out in dismay of what's happening here. Um, what role is this sort of Southern Baptist academia having? So there, I think everyone, so there are a number of seminaries, and I say what we call entities, there are a number of uh, national groups. They are all, I think, they, what they're concerned about is this. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is really held together by kind of trust that the local churches are in charge. They tell the entities what to do. Now, they don't micromanage them, but they tell them in the big picture what you're supposed to do. And what you have here is uh, the executive committee saying to the messengers, well, we don't have to listen to you. You mm. can't tell us what to do, and you can't hold us accountable. Mm. And that has made everybody concerned. Sure. Because uh, I think there was concern, one, that that's, just not how they do things, and that it undermines the whole system. And I think everyone is, that's the main concern, and I think no one in the convention wants there to be abuse. They would really like to make sure there's no abuse. I think they also um, want to make sure that they send the message to churches that we are accountable to you. Mm. And if they're not accountable, that undermines the whole thing. And this is a denomination that collects hundreds of millions of dollars, voluntary from churches, and sends it out. So if there's no trust, that there's no money to do all the work that we do. Mm. Bob Smetana is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. You can find more of Bob's articles at religionnews.com. We've been talking with Bob about some things that are happening with the Southern Baptist. And Bob, you wrote another article talking about how they keep postponing this vote. They're at an impasse. And I think tomorrow, you said, is the next meeting. Could you fill us in on what's happening there? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so the, as I, um, like I mentioned, the, the, the annual meeting set up a task force to hire an investigator. So the task force hired an investigator. They came to the executive committee to sign off on that, that investigator, and they're stuck over talking about attorney-client privilege. And really what this means is there are things that the uh, executive committee doesn't want the investigator to see. Mm. And so they would say, well, no, we can shield our communications um, especially when those with our lawyers or people who are lawyers and staff on the investigate. And uh, the local church messengers, uh, the delegates from the local churches said, no, you need to waive privilege. So, they, so two weeks ago, they met in person in Nashville. They had a five-hour meeting in which at the end of the five hours, they decided to postpone for a week. To, uh, and really what happened in a meeting is there have been kind of like a couple hours of backroom meetings and then public debate, mm. and then they decided to wait for a week. So last week they had another meeting, another five-hour meeting, in which they decided again, just by Zoom, to wait another week wow. to decide. So now they're having the third week meeting starting tomorrow morning to decide whether they'll waive privilege. And that has become, uh, the delay has become, uh, made, you know, all kinds of controversy on social media. I think sure. people have also been upset that about the, the way the meetings have been conducted because they've been live streamed. So we've seen, if you can imagine, a live stream denominational meeting about a a, a contentious subject. It has been um, very contentious. And in one case, uh, one one incident, a um, board member basically said that the the messengers, 15,000 people who voted for this investigation, cannot tell them what to do. And uh, so I think there's some real, real anger over that. But it, it is unclear what's going to happen, and it's unclear whether the the chair, of that, the president of the committee, who's one of the staffers, uh, of, who's a former megachurch pastor named Bonnie Floyd, whether he will survive this because hmm. he has been very opposed to waiving privilege. Uh, he has said, for, on one hand, we want to investigate. We're for this this, this uh, investigation. We want to cooperate. But he uh, has been very outspoken about not waiving privilege. They've hired some high-profile lawyers, 
including Harriet Myers, who was once uh, nominated to the Supreme Court by uh, President Bush, uh, to uh, advise them. So there's a very real uh, anger with him, but there's also a, a uh, some concern that he would not be able to stay because since he's been so resistant to waiving privilege hmm. and, you know, he, he's at odds with the local churches. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. There's a long meeting. I sat in Nashville. In fact, I had to stay an extra day in Nashville. I went to the meetings. Did I had you really? Day because by, the, by the time they finished the meeting, there were no more planes to get home. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. That gives you an idea of, of how, yeah. yeah, how this is going. Bob, for someone like myself, who isn't a part of a Southern Baptist church, never has been, but is watching all this unfold on the national stage, uh, I think probably a lot of our listeners are in a similar position. What is the takeaway for us? Why Why does this matter for us, would you say? Well, I think the, I think the takeaway one is this, this is a very large and influential denomination, and uh, they're having the same problems that every church is having. So that's one takeaway. I think the second takeaway is that I think churches do not want to mistreat abuse survivors. Right. I think that's been very, very clear. And there is a conflict sometimes between the intention of churches and their their legal counsel and denominational administrators. Because yeah. one of the concerns from the executive committee is that um, they have a lot of money that goes that supports a lot of missionaries and seminaries and all kinds of work. And their concern is, and this is not an unreasonable concern, that if um, they waive privilege, they will be sued, and so money that would have gone to missions is gone. would have gone to, um, will go to pay for abuse uh, survivors. Now, there are, there are folks who say, well, yes, we should pay if we have, if there are cases of abuse and we're liable for them. I think they look at what happened to the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts and sure, are sure. free. Uh, it's different for the SBC in some ways because there's no direct control of local churches. But still, there is concern. I mean, there's this whole concern that uh, there has been a long, this has been long been a problem for churches. And how do they deal with survivors? Do mm-hmm. they listen to survivors? Do they? And then, and then this whole idea that we should have reconciliation. There's an idea that if you, you know, abuse, well, we'll have you go meet with your abuser and then you can forgive them and it all goes away. Mm-hmm. And um, so the Christian message can be used to uh, coerce people into forgiveness and to coerce people mm-hmm. in allowing abusive leaders to stay in authority. Mm-hmm. And that has happened, you know, in churches, it's happened in secular groups. So yeah. that's, I think that's the big takeaway. Yeah. And will the, will the, you know, will the local churches who say, no, we have to act differently, yeah. will they win? Yeah. Or will the, you know, will the, will there not be because I think the concern is if there's there's the executive committee doesn't participate or waive privilege that this um, whatever report comes out of it will not be um, will not be trustworthy. I mean that's that's a big thing. Like the, it, this is the takeaway for every church: if something goes wrong, do you tell people? Right. And often the advice is don't tell people. Hide. Don't let this mm. happen. Uh, in some ways to protect the resources that are needed to do the mission. Right. So that, you know, there can be well-intentioned, but I think there is a question that every group has to answer is when there has been abuse and if we mishandle it, what do we do? How do you make it right? Yes. Yeah. I'll be so interested to see how this unfolds over the days to come. And I'm glad you'll continue to write about this. Bob, I'm going to switch topics here for just a minute as we begin to close you also wrote something at religionnews.com about COVID, and you said religion soothed the evangelicals at the start of COVID, but politics put them at risk. And really what you're talking about is how religion divided how Americans respond to COVID. I thought this was a fascinating article. Can you unpack it for us? Sure. So there, there, this was about a couple studies uh, in the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion that looked at, um, they used some uh, data from Pew Research to look at how people um, responded to COVID-19, especially at the beginning, and both mental health and then their response to government restrictions. And so social folks were evangelical in particular, they reported better mental health than other folks. Wow. But they also reported um, a real resistance to any of the restrictions uh, uh, that came up, uh, mm. you know, to, res- to 
keep COVID-19 from spreading. And so basically, one of the researchers basically put it this way, that um, you know, one of the things that helps with mental health for, for church members is being together, right? That's one of the way Christianity and other faith groups, they have a social benefit of support. So in this case, the thing that gives you better mental health, a better support, being together could put you at physical risk. Mm. Uh, they also did some, they did some work with the data to see which was more important for, especially with evangelical Christian, was their evangelical Christian faith or their politics. And they found that the, the, the politics drove the response to the COVID-19 restrictions more than the religion part. Wow. Wow. So that's kind of, it's very, and they, they also looked at local uh, government officials and how they responded. And local government officials also saw, saw this, showed this kind of divide where they were less, um, most local government officials have been, uh, on their personal life, have been uh, willing to mask and socially distance yeah. and all these things. Um, they were a little more uh, reluctant to, uh, especially folks who are evangelical, to impose more restrictions on their community. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's very interesting, yeah. So there's religion... Uh, Religion and politics, especially for evangelicals, has been a, a case here, and how they respond to COVID. It did make people feel better, yeah, but it did lead to more restrictions, and now we're seeing this even more. And this right. was in the early days. You yeah, know, right. Even further on, we're seeing this is the case uh, that, and it really is often, because one of the things that's hard for people to recognize, uh, or they often misunderstand, is that evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, are a distinct religious group with distinct religious beliefs. Yeah. They also are a distinct voting group. Yes. Distinct political beliefs. Very true. And those two overlap. Both of these things, you know, and sometimes the politics determines mm. how people act much more than the religion mm. part. Mm. Kind of a devastating thought. Bob yeah. Smetana is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. You can check out Bob's articles at religionnews.com. Connect with him on Twitter at Bob Smetana. Bob, thanks for being here with us today. Glad to be here. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my special guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. And we are thrilled because we are actually joined yeah. by an author who's a friend of ours, who's actually a member of an author's writer's guild that we're a part of called the Redbud Writers. Her name is Afton Rorvik. Afton is a speaker and author. And we are so excited to talk to her about her new book, Living Connected, An Introvert's Guide to Friendship. Afton, thanks for joining us today. Oh, this is just a delight. So nice to be with both of you. We are so thrilled and, to have you. Go ahead, Afton. Oh, well, just so nice to have known you and shared writing over the years. And uh, I just really appreciate both of you. We have had a lot of hours of sitting over cups of coffee and meals and pouring <laughs> over a manuscript. So this is quite a blessing. Well, Afton Rorvik savors words, flavored coffee, like we just talked about time outside and living connected. She happily embraces her introversion as a gift and celebrates her courage, giving faith in God. Afton, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who may not know you? Well, I've been a part of the writing and editing publishing world for a long, long time. Um, and I've been an introvert all my life. And it took me a long time to realize that uh, decades, I would say, um, mm. And I am passionate about friendship. I realize that I don't do it well. <laughs> mm. um, so I set myself the task of just learning about it. Wow. And so that's really where this book came from. I, I wanted to just keep learning about doing friendship. And because I'm an introvert, that took a very specific turn. Um, it's different. It's different as an introvert trying to connect with people. And, you know, I live a lot in my head because I'm an introvert, mm -hmm. so of course I read a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have worked together on many different professional writing um, opportunities yes. and ventures, um, and I was yes. so grateful to get an early copy of this book and grateful mm. to offer an endorsement, actually. Mm -hmm. um, here's what I said about it. Um, we all know that we're called to love each other, but how? The truth is we don't always know how to be a good friend. And who among us is brave enough to ask for help learning such a skill? In Living Connected, Afton Rorvik writes with honesty and clarity, drawing from her own wisdom to gently coach us on the journey to friendship. 
However skilled you may be at relationships, I'm confident you'll benefit from this heartfelt and practical guide. Um, Afton, can you just kind of summarize quickly for us, like what is kind of, what do you want to tell introverts about becoming better friends? Yeah, and thank you, Catherine. Thank you for reading and giving me that endorsement. That means a lot. Um, so as I wrote the book, I, uh, I guess I started from a place of feeling shamed about being an introvert that um, all my life I've been the quiet one or the one who walks into a room and feels awkward. And I, I realized the more I researched, the more I prayed, the more I thought that having my personality being an introvert is actually a gift and it's actually a gift that helps me connect, mm. which kind of surprised me. Mm. But um, introverts tend to be very empathetic. They tend to listen well. Mm -hmm. And those are traits that really help them connect. So um, my hope would be that as people, particularly introverts, read this book, they would realize that they don't need to feel less than. Mm -hmm. Um, They can honor and respect the voice that God has given them, even though it's a quiet voice, Mm -hmm. and that they can really pursue relationships with courage. Um, I also hope that extroverts will read this book. Hmm. Um, I did have a few extroverts read it and endorse it, and um, they actually said, wow, I hadn't thought about this, which really surprised me. Um, So I'm hoping there'll be some conversations. Now, obviously, we are way more than a personality test. You can't put people in a box and say, you exactly fit this type um, but it's a really basic way of helping us understand each other. And um, yeah, I found it really empowering to understand that my voice, my quiet voice, is a gift from God. It's mm. not a curse. Oh, it is. Often, yeah. um, with that in mind, for our listeners who may you know, have some general ideas but may not exactly know, how do you know if you're an introvert or an extrovert? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, complicated, but the... the definition that helps me the most is what energizes you. Hmm. So an introvert is energized by quiet. An extrovert is energized by activity, interaction. Hmm. Um, So for example, my husband is an extrovert. So when he's had a long week and he's tired, he is energized by phone calls with friends. Okay. Um, But when I've had a long week and I'm tired, I'm energized by time in my basement by myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Quiet, quiet for an introvert acts like fuel. It's like a car needs gas. I need quiet. Mm. Afton, um, I know that your book, Living Connected, an Introvert's Guide to Friendship, is structured around 12 words. I love that structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it just, okay, I know what we're talking about now, and I'm, and and now I'm, I just love how it kind of moves you forward through the book. Can you tell us why you picked 12 words and why you picked those 12 words? That's a great question. Uh, so the book originally started as something my husband and I hatched together. Um, oh. We both, yeah, we both really care about friendship and it's become something that's just really core to who we are. Mm. And so we talked a lot back and forth about, okay, what are the qualities that matter most in friendship? What has helped you build friendship? Mm. And what was fascinating about it is, like I said before, he's an extrovert and I'm an introvert. <laughs> yeah, right. So it was a, it was a good conversation. And um, some of these words also were words I knew that I needed to challenge myself with. Um, for instance, approachability. I know that I struggle with that. Hmm. Um, I struggle with... Um, greeting a stranger, um, sending off that vibe that I am approachable, I'm friendly. Um, so, yeah, some of the words I actually assigned myself and said I just want to dig in and figure this out. Oh, um, I love that. That's so fascinating, Afton. Um, it, was there any particular mm-hmm. word that felt exceptionally challenging for you to assign <laughs> yourself? <laughs> uh, approachability, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, in that chapter, I start out with a story about my mother-in-law who has this remarkable gift of approaching people. And 
we have started calling it doing a mother. My mother in law. And I admire her for doing it. My husband admires her for doing it. Um, but as I've watched her do it, I realized that's not me. I'm mm. not an extrovert. Mm. But how can I learn from her? I admire her. How can I admire and then adapt what she's doing? So how can I, in my own quiet sort of way, approach other people, Mm. um, appear to be friendly? And, you know, there are a lot of things you can do that don't require words. You can smile at someone. You can make eye contact. Mm. You can, when you're taking a walk in the neighborhood, wave. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that I dug in and dealt with some of those challenging words. Oh, this is so helpful, Afton. I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, introverted and extroverted. Again, we're talking with Afton Rorvik, speaker and author about her brand new book, Living Connected, an introvert's guide to friendship. It comes out tomorrow. You can order it right now on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Afton, you wrote a blog post called How Does an Introvert Emerge from a Pandemic that I thought was fascinating. And so let me just ask you your own question. How does an introvert emerge from a pandemic? <laughs> it, I went back and read it and realized I'd written that about six months ago. Wow. I think in my head, I, I thought, okay, we're done, you know, um, and we're still in a bit of this. Um, but I again, I wrote a blog post kind of to challenge myself because I had really enjoyed that year of quiet. Um, I spent the whole year writing a book and it was so refreshing um, not to have to say no to people in order to carve out the time to write. Um, You know, I just had this quiet cocoon. Um, But then I realized after I got vaccinated, you know what, I I need to reach out. Mm. I need to go see people face to face. Um, It was challenging. It really was. Um, I liked that cocoon, <laughs> uh, and I know a lot of people did. So in the blog post, I wrote about some things that I had learned, and one of them is that quiet fuels me. Mm-hmm. So I need to remember that. When I head back into the busy world, I need to remember that I still need to fuel up with quiet. I need to take those gulps of quiet every day. Um, and interestingly, one of the things I... Um, challenge myself to do was to learn to talk on the phone. Mm. And I know that sounds silly. Um, I'm a grown woman. I should know how to talk on the phone. (laughs) Um, I I can't. (laughs) Ask my husband. He will laugh at me. I would rather do anything but dial someone on the phone. Oh, thank you. I feel better. Um, But I, I realized during the pandemic that I had friends that I really valued that I wanted to stay in touch with and they were phone people. Some of Mm. them were older. Um, So I realized, you know, I need to learn to talk on the phone. So I learned to do things like text people first or set up a phone call. Um, But I just realized it mattered. It mattered to stay in touch with these people. And I couldn't expect that they would all want to email or even could email. Mm. Um, it's true. So, it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> Afton, yeah. Um, I, I'm an introvert myself. I definitely need a reflective, mm-hmm. non-chaotic time to survive, but I'm very outgoing. Yeah. Um, I love to mm-hmm. be a verbal processor, so I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, I love my extrovert yeah. friends because I know that I can stop by their house or ask them if they want to go to a movie, and they're not going to be like, oh, I can't even handle it. Like, <laughs> why are you here? <laughs> love my introvert friends because uh, Mm -hmm. introverts are the people who remember that it's your birthday and remember to ask how your mom is doing and remember, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're the ones that are actually paying attention to who you are and what's going on in the relationship. And so you said earlier that Mm -hmm. uh, you've always felt, I don't remember what word you use, maybe insecure um, Uh about just your capacity for friendship as an introvert. And I just want to say thank you, Afton and introverts everywhere for (laughs) the powerful and strong uh, strength that you bring to friendship. But I do, Mm. because I understand that need for quiet, I do hesitate to reach Mm -hmm. out to introverts because I never want to uh, infringe Mm -hmm. on that. And I think that's a question that I have Mm -hmm. about this book is, is there a mm-hmm. sense of irony here? You, do introverts just want to be left alone? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we do like quiet. Um, we do. And yet one of the things I love most is sitting down with someone and talking face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, for an introvert, it is easier to do a small group or to do a one-on-one. Um, you know, Catherine, we've had a couple of conversations over coffee that have been so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and as an introvert, I do realize that I have to keep doing that. Mm. Um, I have to keep connecting. I can live in my head. Um, it's a very cozy place to be. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but you know, I love God. And I see that throughout the Bible, he says, um, love each other, but I loved you. Mm. And I can't do that if I'm just sitting in my head or mm. sitting in my basement. I, I have to connect one-on-one. Um, it doesn't have to be loud. It can be in a quiet, thoughtful sort of way. But I, I am compelled by the love of Jesus to reach out. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful, Afton. And Afton, mm. you said earlier that this book is not just for introverts, although it certainly is. Talk to us about what extroverts will get out of reading this. <laughs> yeah, so I have had a few people read it, including my extroverted husband. Mm-hmm. And um, what they say is, oh, I never thought about this. Or, oh, this really helped me understand so-and-so. That's what I hope the book will do. I hope it will start some conversations like that and just help us be more empathetic of other people and just understand we're all different, but Mm. we need each other. We we introverts, like you were saying, Catherine, we need extroverted friends. Extroverted friends need introverted friends. We bring different strengths to the relationship, and we need each other. Afton, this is a true story, but when I was in junior high, I literally went to the library and found a bunch of teen magazines and read up on them, hoping to find out how to be a friend, because (laughs) I was an introvert with an introvert mom, and I lacked those skills, and I needed your book. That's a true story. That's true confessions here on the air. But um, for all of the people introvert or extrovert who are listening and they're like, I don't want to look this up at the library. Where is Afton? Where is her book? Where can we find your book? Um, And where can we find you on social media or more things Mm -hmm. that you've written? Yeah, that's a great confession, Catherine. I did the same thing. (laughs) Did you? And and that's what we, yes, yes. I I think I started a bit later, but that's what we introverts do. We find books and we read and we think, um, yeah. So uh, the book's on Amazon, um, and you can connect with me on my website. Um, there's a lot of information there, aptonorvik.com. Um, tomorrow's launch day, and I decided that I needed to own my quiet, introverted voice. So what I'm going to be doing is reading little bits of the book and putting them on Facebook at Learning to Live Connected. I'm also going to be putting them on YouTube. Oh, wow. I have a YouTube channel, Afton Warwick. Yeah, at YouTube. I just decided, you know, I'm going to sit in my office and read, and I'll be interacting throughout the day rather than doing a big, loud event. Oh, I so. just love that, Afton. I it's so that. uniquely you and so perfect for It is. Yeah. And it's so connecting. Yeah. You're being your introvert self, yeah. but you're connecting to others. I love that. So good. Yeah, Afton, trying to do it in a quiet, thoughtful sort of way. I love it. That's so, so perfectly connected to the book. Again, the title of Afton Rorvik's new book is Living Connected, an Introvert's Guide to Friendship, coming out tomorrow. Grab a copy for yourself and for all of your introvert and extrovert friends. You can learn more about Afton at AftonRorvik.com. Connect with her on Twitter at AftonRorvik. And go to AftonRorvik at YouTube tomorrow to hear her or on Facebook as well to hear her reading parts of her book. Afton, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. This was so much fun. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. And we are so thrilled that you've been with us today. We always love to end the show by giving you something inspiring, encouraging, meaningful to think about. And with that in mind, we are joined by Katie Polsky. She's a writer, teacher, and retreat speaker and has written a beautiful, powerful article over at the Gospel Coalition called Don't Pray That You Won't Suffer. Katie, thanks for being here with us today to talk about your article. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be on with y'all. 
When Catherine and I read this, we both were like, oh, we could talk to her for hours. But for our listeners, since we only have a few minutes, why don't you just go ahead and talk to us about this? Don't pray that you won't suffer. Why did you write this article and what in the world do you mean? So I, I'm a mom of uh, three kids. My oldest is uh, in college. I have a senior in high school and an eighth grader currently. And as most parents uh, are well aware, and even if you're not a parent, I'm sure you've experienced something similar with that. When it comes to suffering, it's natural to want to avoid it, right? It's hard to uh, pray, Lord, bring it into to my life. That's not uh, That's not usually what we what we do. And so my tendency then, especially when it comes to my kids, is is to want to pray that the Lord would um, spare them, spare them of, of some mm-hmm. of you know, the, the difficulty of life. Uh, and so I was reading uh, a book by Kathleen Nielsen, who's actually uh, my aunt. Um, and it's one of, it's in a series called Prayers of Parents. And this particular one is, is Prayers for Parents of Young Adults. And just this one sentence caught my phrase. She encouraged us to pray not that we or our children would be kept from suffering, but that the Lord would give us the grace to suffer well. Mm. And I just stopped for a few minutes and prayed, um, really brought tears to my eyes, just thinking, Lord, I, I, I know, I know in my heart that my kids will suffer. And, and I don't want to uh, pray that away because I know in my own life, my own testimony, that the times of hardship have brought me closer to the Lord. And so instead of praying, Lord, keep them from harm, I so appreciated this idea of um, praying that they would suffer well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then what led to writing the article was, what does that look like? What does that look like? Um, Because we can't do that on our own. I can't, I can't suffer well on my own. I can't, I know my kids can't do that. Um, So there were a a few points that that the Lord really um, impressed on my heart. Um, that are important to remember when it comes to suffering, and that is that we're in Christ. The Lord is is sovereign. Um, resist despair, which is different from sadness. Mm. Worship the Lord mm. in suffering, which seems contrary, uh, but it actually can be a beautiful experience. Yes. And then just to to remember that Jesus is near. He mm-hmm. makes clear in Scripture that he is close to the brokenhearted. Yes. He's as close as, as our breath. He's, he's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was good for me to reflect on these things, uh, to remember both for my ch- children's lives that they will suffer, but the Lord can do amazing things through it. And so rather yeah. than praying for us to be kept from it, pray that they would suffer well through through life and the, the difficulties that, that come along. Good. Katie, this is a theme that I both wrestle with as a human, but also write about a lot as a writer. Um, where is the spiritual formation, not in seeking our comfort and our ease, but in, in constantly reminding ourselves or allowing the Spirit to remind us that God is present and God is offering his strength? Um, however okay. dark the valley is, God is present. God is offering his strength. And I've been during this pandemic, trying to bring those themes into my prayers with my children. Mm. Obviously, we're praying for some particularly hard things to not come our path, but we always follow up with, um, but if it does, give us the strength to remember that you are present and give us your strength. Um, How has the rubber met the road for you and your family on these things? Because uh, there is a lot of trouble these days. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the things that the Lord has, has taught me with regard to, to his nearness is that he will give us exactly what we need when we need it. Mm-hmm. He promises us that through his spirit and anxiety comes when we predict or when we attempt to predict or when we let uh, ourselves sit in the what if, what yeah. if, what if this, what if that, but what the scripture tells us is, no, the Lord will give us exactly what we need when or if we come to that point that, that you know, we may uh, fear. The mm. Holy Spirit will give us what's necessary. I, I experienced that in caring for my mom. She died of a rare brain disease. Oh. And I remember one day um, 
uh, she needed a, she needed a shower, and it was this weird kind of I don't want to do this, you know. It's my mom, but she couldn't open the shampoo bottle, so I got in the shower with her fully clothed and started mm. bathing her, and she started she started crying, and I I I in that moment um, recognized how near the Lord was. He mm. was with me. He was with my mom, and it's something I can't fully. Explain. Blame, right, yeah. but if you've been there, if you have experienced uh, the mud and the mire, you know how the Lord reveals Himself, and He yes. does it in a unique way for each individual. And I, I pray that for my for my kids. I may not be able to predict the exact way that the Lord will uh, bring them through a struggle. I'm not the author of their story. Thank the Lord for that. Yeah, um, yeah. but but He is, and He will provide for them. And for us, exactly what we need in the moments that are uh, the, the deepest struggle in life. Oh, that's beautiful, Katie. Katie, you're also part of an upcoming ministry conference called Rooted. Can you tell us more about that and what you'll be speaking on? Yes. So I, I'd love to talk about Rooted Ministry. They're, they're doing great things. Uh, Rooted is focused uh, for youth uh, pastors and other uh, youth ministry leaders in churches, and then they also have a separate ministry for parents. Um, they they uh, they're gospel centered uh, ministry, very practical for for students and especially parents who have teens. Um, the conference coming up uh, is focused uh, on on addressing issues both for youth ministers and for parents. There's a number of um, Pretty amazing plenary speakers, including Trillia Newbell and Cameron Cole, um, and and there's a number of workshops as well. I'm leading a workshop on uh, the importance of incorporating worship in our homes and in our youth ministries. Uh, I'm a music director at our church, so I, I love to talk on this subject. It's a passion of mine, and I I can't wait to to talk about that in particular. Uh, but this is a yearly conference, so I encourage you, you can visit rootedministry.com to find out a little bit more, not only about this year's conference, conference but past conferences and, um, and maybe anticipate um, attending in, in the future. It's, it's always a great, great blessing. Oh, that sounds awesome. Again, that's the Rooted Ministry Conference. You can find out more at rooted-conference.com. You can learn more about Katie at katiepolsky.com. Katie, thanks so much for being here with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, today. Brian Fromm and I will be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Catherine McNeil, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.